Jen Wilkin mentioned a book and her message, uh, The Bravery of Women in the Bible. And this book is called Dominion and Dynasty. But he had a quote I wanted us to open with this morning. He's actually quoting Auerbach, a pioneering literary critic who was able to see more clearly than most the religious claim of the Bible precisely as a result of his study. Now listen to what he said. The, the Bible's claim to truth is not only far more urgent than Homer's. He's talking about Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and how we just agree that he is the presumed author and it tells us a lot about Greek life. It is not, it's far more urgent than Homer's. It excludes all other claims. The world of the scripture stories is not satisfied with claiming to be a historically true reality. It insists that it is the only real world. It is The scripture stories do not, like Homer's, court our favor. They do not flatter us so that they may please and enchant us. They seek to subject us, and if we refuse, we are rebels. That's what we're seeing as we study the word of God. That's exactly what God is revealing to us as he's recording for us the history of the beginning. And as we've been looking at this and we see the rebels who turn away from God eventually end up self-destroying themselves. They just, they do. We self-destruct when we're left to ourselves. That's exactly what sin does. It's what Romans 1 tells us what happens when we get in that downward spiral of sin and sin becomes a compulsion. That's exactly what was happening in the time of Noah. Sin became a compulsion and every thought and intent of every person's heart was evil continually. That's hard for us to even fathom, but that is the end result of rebelling against God's word and trying to build a life apart from him. Now we saw the flood last week in Genesis chapter seven when the canopy over the earth burst and the deeps of the earth erupted. Know that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. There was another 150 days when the waters are churning before things begin to calm down and the water eventually begins to recede. The flood is actually a picture of baptism. Passing through the waters of death and into new life. That is why we practice baptism by immersion which is exactly what was modeled for us by Jesus. Jesus' baptism is symbolic of the death of the old and the beginning of the new. He announced that the kingdom of heaven had come to earth. Jesus was anointed and a pronouncement by God God was made over him at his baptism. We see another picture of baptism with Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea. What does God do? He parts the waters. They pass through to the other side of new life apart from Egypt. And what does God do with those waters? They come back over Pharaoh and his army, destroying the sinful ones who were coming after them. So because they trusted God, God parted the waters. He took them through the waters into new life, eventually into the land that God had promised them that we know was to be a land of blessing and a land of rest. We're seeing in this account of Noah, decreation and recreation. In fact, we looked at it this week in our our study as we saw how when things begin to be repopulated, it's actually in the same order as creation. All creation is destroyed by the flood except for those in the ark. That's exactly how we should picture what it means to be in Christ. All those who are not in the ark of Christ, all those who are not in him will eventually be destroyed. So then we see the subsiding of the water. Let's pick up in Genesis chapter 8 and let's look at verses 1 through 14. But God remembered Noah. 
And it isn't as though he had forgotten, but we see that's a phrase used quite often through scripture where God remembers or he's bringing back to account the promise he's made to Noah. And all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind, and that word for wind is ruach. It's the same word for spirit. So the breath of God is being blown over the water to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat, which we now most believe is in Turkey. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself." So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Guys, that is one year and 10 days on an ark (laughs) with a bunch of animals and only your family. We think quarantining during a pandemic was rough. Doesn't come close. Doesn't come close. Think about what that has done to our mental health, our stress, our anxiety, our fear level, and think about Noah and his family. (laughs) I don't even know what we would multiply that by to understand what they must have been experiencing during a year and 10 days when everything they knew and everything around them was literally boiling up from the earth, everything being destroyed all around them. And yet they were safe because they obeyed God. But Noah had to wait. Noah had to wait for God to tell him it was time to come off the ark. So Noah waited for a year and 10 days. And we know that the dove came back with a freshly picked olive leaf. And so you're thinking, okay, now's the time, right? But he would not leave the ark until the Lord gave him the word. That struck me this week because waiting is so difficult for most of us. I am extremely impatient. I am a firstborn doer, get her done, do it the most efficient way. My husband is into the experience of life so much more than I am. And I have to like let him help me experience life sometimes because I can put blinders on and I'm getting her done. I am checking off the to-do list. I am most efficient from A to B. If it is most efficient to go this way to this place, I will go that way every single time because it's the most efficient. I mean, why would I waste time and go another way? And Steve's like, how many times have we seen this? Let's see how many other ways we can find to go to this place, (laughs) which drives me crazy. And it's like when we have errands to run, his idea is let's do this together. How fun to spend the entire day together running errands. 
And I'm like, are you kidding me? If we divided and conquered, we could knock it out in a couple of hours. <laughs> and then we can enjoy the rest of the day. But his whole thing is like, let's experience it as we're going. But I'm always wanting to get wherever I'm going. And so sometimes I miss the enjoyment of the moment. And so I've been really working at being present in the moment, being all in wherever I am. And I can tell you, having grandchildren helps because they grow up so fast, they change so quickly that when I'm with them, sometimes I want to freeze them right where they are because they're so precious and so adorable. And I recognize how, how quickly these moments will pass and I want to be able to enjoy them as long as God gives me breath. But I have to learn how to wait. We live in a microwave, fast food, drive-through world. And so we can't help how some of that impacts us and impacts the way we think. We have to pull back and ask the Lord to help us breathe, <laughs> to help us be in the moment so that we are walking and communing with him and we're able to get in on what he is doing, not just focused on what we have to do, but Lord, where are you working around me? And how can you use me to encourage someone, to pray for someone, to share the gospel with someone as I go? So I've got to take the blinders off and I've got to look at those around me, recognizing people are so much more important than my to-do list. Whether it's my husband, my children, my grandchildren, my neighbors, the lady that's checking me out at the grocery store, whoever it may be, they are of utmost importance. And we see that reinforced because every single person has been created in the image of God. And so we need to learn to wait on the Lord, not to get ahead of him. We see in scripture what happens when you get ahead of God and you think God needs your help. We mess things up every single time. So we need to wait on the Lord. I had a brand new experience of learning to wait and obey when I got my spiral fracture in my fibula this summer and was not able to put weight on my foot for seven weeks. When they first told me that and I was going to have surgery and it would be six weeks of non-weight bearing, it was just like, that seemed like an eternity. How could I go that long? I have way too much to do. <laughs> like, nobody's got time for this. Well, evidently I did. And so I just spent that time, said, okay, Lord, I'm going to accept it. This is what happened. And I want you to teach me in the midst of this. And one of the things he is teaching me is to be more empathetic toward those who struggle when they walk, who it takes longer to do things. And to recognize that, once again, haste and hurry is not Christ. He was busy, but he was never in a hurry. You notice that? He always had time for people. He always had time for the one woman that reached out and grabbed his robe. He had time for the man who came whose child was sick or the centurion who sent someone and said his slave was sick. Jesus made time for people because people are the kingdom of God. People will be in the presence of the Lord or separated from him for all of eternity based on what they do with Jesus. So I believe God allows sometimes circumstances and situations to come into our lives to slow us down so that we're more sensitive and in tune with him and also more aware of those around us. And we focus on what really matters, the word of God, the souls of men, women, and children, and prayer. Those things are eternal. 
Noah doesn't depart from the ark until the Lord tells him it's time. He waited, and we know God had reasons. And when we think about it, in fact, I was, I was a little disturbed by wondering, where are all the dead people you know, in the midst of all this? So I did a little research online. Nobody knows. It's all speculation. But most were talking about if there were eruptions, like volcanic-type eruptions coming up from the bottom of the earth and the canopy of the work. The, above the heavens is, is torn open and all this torrential downfall is coming, the earth would have been churning like this. And so most everyone would have been caught up and crushed, buried in that churning. And so as God is allowing the water, his wind, his breath to blow over it and to begin to recede, he's leaving behind a cleansed earth. Just as we are washed by the water of the word, God used his spirit to blow over the earth that he had created and to allow the water to begin to recede and to leave behind a cleansed earth. But that year and 10 days on an ark and the loss of everything and everyone they knew had to be traumatic. St. John of the Cross, I believe, is the one who coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul. If you live long enough, you'll be there. It's those difficult, dark times in life when it seems as though God is not present and not speaking. And it's in those dark times that we have to choose by faith to trust what we already know is true about God because we know his character by how he has revealed himself in his word. I immediately thought of Daniel as I thought about this. Daniel, taken as a teenager into Babylon in the first wave of captivity in about 605 BC, he was taken and he was probably made a eunuch, but from the very beginning, he refused to compromise on how God had called his people to live separate while still in the world. He wouldn't even compromise on what he ate, and yet he was submissive enough of authority to ask permission, and God blessed his willingness to submit to authority, and God granted him favor, and he was able to live in Babylon as an Israelite, as a Jew, obeying even God's dietary laws. But he also would go to his room and open the windows toward Jerusalem three times a day and pray, And he was seeking God and seeking for God to restore his people back to their land and to enable them to be faithful where they were. And we know from some of his prayers, he would confess the sins of his people. He stood in the gap on their behalf. So when the big test came, it wasn't a test. When some people tricked the king into signing a decree that anyone who praised anybody other than him would be thrown into the lion's den, it wasn't even a decision for Daniel because it's what he did daily to honor the Lord. And because he did it daily, when the big test came, there was no test. He just did what he knew was right to do. And because he went to his room and opened the windows and began to pray, aha, he's trapped We can trap him in his devotion to his God because they knew he would not waver on that. And he's thrown into the lion's den. And the king can't sleep. He's crying out to Daniel's God to save him. And at daybreak, what does he do? He runs back to the lion's den. Daniel, Daniel, has the God you served saved you? Yes, O king, don't worry. My God sent an angel who closed the mouth of the lion. Because Daniel was faithful daily. The big test wasn't a test. 
He was able to be faithful in the face of death. And so I want to encourage you. We're in Bible study. We encourage each other to be in the, in the Word daily, to have a, a system, a plan for reading through the Word of God. But every single day, do what Daniel did. Honor the Lord. Spend time in His presence. Have a time that you set aside to be in His Word, to pray, to get in on what God is doing, so that then when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because your God is with you. You've gotten to know Him on a daily basis before the dark night of the soul. So when the dark night of the soul comes, and it will, and you can't hear God, you can't sense God, you know he's there because of his word and because of his faithfulness in the past, and you continue to do what you know is right, and at some point there will be daybreak when God says, okay, come out of the ark. It's time. It's time. I'm going to recreate what I have destroyed. It's that beautiful picture that Dana shared with us this morning about the Japanese pottery and how they can take broken pieces of pottery and put them back together, how it's literally become an art form and they become masterpieces. When you come out of your dark night of the soul, God will put the pieces back together and it will be more beautiful and stronger than you were before because you've surrendered and because you've placed your faith in the God of the word, the God who has proved himself throughout history. There's so many scriptures that talk about waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 64, four, for from days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. What is faith? The assurance of things not seen, right? It is the conviction of things we know are true because of what God has said in his word. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then H.D.M. Spence in his commentary on Genesis says, we have then the remarkable coincidences. Now listen to this, because these three things happened on what most believe is the same time of the year, if not the same day. We have then the remarkable coincidences that on the 17th day of Abib, about the beginning of April, the ark rested on Mount Ararat, the Israelites passed over the Red Sea, and our Lord rose again from the dead. Wow. God gives us throughout the Old Testament physical pictures of spiritual realities. Spence went on to say, the deliverance of Noah and his family was a type, a picture of the salvation of the saints, which however is immeasurably grander than that of Noah, in kind as being a spiritual and not merely a temporal deliverance. So that we know that in Christ we are we are delivered fully and completely for all of eternity, spirit and soul, body eventually in glorification. Here, Noah was temporarily delivered. Two, in degree, as being complete, whereas Noah's was at best an imperfect deliverance, a deliverance from the flood, but not from that which caused the flood, 
sin. We know ultimately we will be delivered from all that causes pain, separation, death, the sin. We will be separated from it when we are in the new heavens and the new earth and there is no more curse, no more sin. And then three, in duration. Noah's deliverance was only for a time. He died 350 years later. In the end, he descended to the grave. The deliverance of the saints is forever, forever. Now let's pick back up. Verse 15, then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons, your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took up every clean animal, every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. What did Noah do the moment he got off the boat? He worshiped. He worshiped the Lord. He built an altar and he took up the clean animals and he offered them as a burnt offering. That means there was nothing left over for Noah and his family. He offered it all to the Lord. He worshiped God and it was pleasing to the Lord. In fact, it was so pleasing that the Lord says, I will never again destroy the earth and every living thing by water. And then we move into chapter nine. Let's look at verses one through seven. We see God's blessing and God's commands. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made you. He made man. So we see here, God bless them. And then what does he command them? It's like creation all over again, right? (laughs) We saw how they repopulated the earth in the order of creation. Now God is saying the same thing to Noah and his sons that he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. But we see some differences here because now animals are going to fear man. So there's gonna be some hostility here. And also God is saying you are to avenge death because every man and woman has been created in the image of God. So no longer will murder be allowed. A person's life will be required. A beast's life will be required if they take the life of someone created in the image of God. And we see animals given for food. Only here we see, not with the blood. You're gonna kill the animal, you've gotta drain the blood. Why? Because the life is in the blood and the life is sacred. And we know the blood is sacred because it points ultimately to the blood of Jesus Christ that will cover us and wash us as white as snow. And then God is going to make a covenant with mankind. 
Look at verse seven and following. As for you, the fruitful, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly. And God said to Noah and to his son with him, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant, which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth." Now, we saw this past week, the covenants, and we studied them, the five main covenants in Scripture. Noah sees the rainbow. That bow, as we see, the, the word that God uses, it's, it's like a bow and arrow. It's a weapon of war. And if you think about it, the bow is set in the sky facing who? Who's it turned toward? God, not man. So the bow is placed in the sky as a sign of the covenant that God is making with mankind and with animals. In our workbook this week, I pulled a quote. Noah sees the rainbow after the storm. Ezekiel sees the rainbow in the middle of the storm when he has a vision of the throne of God. He's in the midst of Babylonian captivity and God allows him to see the throne of God. John, in the book of Revelation, sees a complete rainbow around the throne of God before the storm of judgment takes place. In Revelation 4, verse 3, and the throne of God is completely encircled by this emerald rainbow just before Revelation 6, when the great tribulation begins to be poured out on the earth. The blood of Jesus has transformed the throne of God from a throne of judgment for us to a throne of mercy. And in the Bible Project, in fact, that's an excellent resource, just bibleproject.com, has all kinds of good resources on books of the Bible and the storyline of the Bible. Um, Whitney Wallard was also quoted in this week's workbook, but she says there are five explicit covenants that form the backbone of the Bible. Those God makes with Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus. You'll want to know these as they keep the narrative moving along until we get to the climax of the story, Jesus. So we have here in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17, the Noahic covenant. We have the covenant God makes initially to never again destroy the earth by water. Then we're going to have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. If you remember Genesis 15, it's where God takes Abraham outside and he looks at the stars of the sky and says, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars of the sky before he had even had a biological son. But God had promised him one. We know it took 25 years, that promise to be fulfilled. Talk about waiting. We know what happened when they got impatient in year 10 also. So we want to take that as a warning. But Abraham believed God 
and it was credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. So we see the picture of salvation in the Old Testament is the same as the New. It's by grace through faith. It's because we believe God credits his righteousness to us. Then we have the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 19 through 24, when God gives Moses all the laws of God and all the blessings and the curses. This is the covenant he's making with his people. And then we have the Davidic Covenant, that there will always be a king on the throne of David, and ultimately the the descendant of David will be the one who delivers his people. And we have the New Covenant with Jesus Christ. Whitney Wallard went on to say, do you see now how the covenants progressively build upon one another, forming a backbone of sorts to the redemptive storyline? God preserved the world through Noah, initiated redemption through Abraham, formed a special people through Israel, promised a shepherd king through David, and then fulfilled all of his covenantal promises through Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. With each covenant, God's promises and plans to save the world through the seed of the woman become clearer and clearer until we finally see that redemption can only come through King Jesus. That means we have the advantage of knowing the end of the story. We know that the promised one, the seed of man, he came. He came through the Virgin Mary when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and the child formed within her was the Son of God. We know that he lived a sinless life. We know that he took our place on the cross. He literally shed his blood for us. And as we spoke about when we talked about Eve being taken out of the side of Adam, we know that his side was pierced, his blood flowed forth purchasing his bride, the church. We were taken out of his side as he purchased us with his blood, foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system. We know that we have the blessing of knowing he's coming back, that not only did God raise him from the dead, but he's coming back for us that we might forever be with him and all that he has prepared for us. The Bible says, I has not seen nor has ear heard all that God has prepared for those who love him. We know this. And so consequently, we wait, regardless of what's going on around us. We wait with anticipation. We wait with steadfast hope and assurance because we know our God. We know him through his son, Jesus Christ, and his spirit who's come to live and indwell us. We know that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're now children of God. And we literally cry out to him, Abba, Father. We know because we've seen how he has dealt with mankind throughout. His desire has always been to bless, that he, he, he works for our well-being, that truly all things do work together for good to those who are called by God, to those who love him and have committed their lives to him. We know this from his word, but we also know it from experience. We know that he promised to never leave us nor forsake us. I got to pray with a precious precious sister in Christ Sunday morning whose husband died tragically of a massive heart attack a few months ago. They have children still in the home. I can't even fathom the difficulty, but I was able to tell her, he is your I am. He will be your husband He will be your children's father. He will meet your every need if you will cast yourself upon him, cling to him in the darkness of this period, and he will bring you through. He will speak, peace be still, eventually over this storm, and he will work it together for good. We don't understand why some things happen, 
We don't understand why some people are healed and some people are taken. But we do know our God has a purpose. And he only moves and acts and allows things to come into our lives that will ultimately draw us closer to him and allow us to experience him in a greater level of intimacy and trust so that one day when we see him face to face, we'll get it. We'll get it. The Bible says right now you see us in a mirror dimly. You're, you know, we're trying so hard to see. And he allows us glimpses. There are times that it's clearer than others, is it not? When you see God's truth and you see him moving and working in the world around you. But then there are other times where things seem to be kind of foggy and uncertain. And yet we cling to him in his word and we choose not to be led or controlled by our feelings, by the voices of those in the world, or by the evil one who wants to lie to us and tell us God is not good. And he cannot be trusted. Those are lies. So we choose instead to elevate the word of God and allow it to be the authority in our life. And God has revealed himself to us in his story, the narrative of history, the beginning of time. And what we see from the very beginning is it is our rebellion and sin that brings strife, death, and pain. But it's when we surrender to him that he takes our pain and our difficulties and he refashions them in our life. And if we will surrender, he will bring something beautiful out of it. And as we invest in those things that are eternal, when we stand before him and our works are tried by fire, that's when you'll have that pile of gold and silver and precious stones to lay at the feet of the one who loves you so much that he willingly laid down his life. He willingly was beaten, spat upon, mocked, betrayed, and ultimately crucified. Separated for the first time in all of eternity from the presence of the Father and the Spirit for you and for me because that's how great his love is. So is there anything we can't face in this life that he won't take us through? Because he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will stick closer than a brother if we run to him and not from him. He is the only one who has not only the answers, he's the only one who can help. Let's bow this morning. I don't know what burdens some of you are carrying, what circumstances you're in, what dark place you may be in right now. But I want you to know, God knows. He sees and he cares. And he's moved with great compassion for you and your situation. 